This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 482. And the quote of the day is, Excellence is the gradual result of always striving to do better. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, boys and girls? Nick Ruffini here, and this is episode 482 of the podcast. And if you are just tuning in for the first time, thanks for being here. Episode 482, all 482 of these episodes are free, and you can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Here's the catch. There are only 300 episodes on those platforms, so if you want to hear the other, you know, 180-some, 182 of them, uh, just head over to drummersresource.com. They're all free there. I don't, you know, you don't have to give me your email address or anything. There's just a limit to how many you can put on iTunes. I don't know why, but that's the way it is. So uh, (laughs) with that, let's get in this conversation. This is with Derek Phillips, and I first came to know about Derek and is playing through Robin Ford's latest record called Purple House, and it is it's just grooving. And I was I, coincidentally, I was listening to it in the car at Nam. I was driving around with a buddy of mine. And I said, "Man, who is this drummer?" And it was Derek Phillips, or it is Derek Phillips. And so I started to do more research on him, and my man is highly accomplished. He plays with Charlie Hunter. He plays with, obviously, does session work, you know, with Robin Ford. Uh, does session work with a ton of other people. He's on tour right now with Brett Eldridge. He's won a Grammy Award. He's orchestrally trained. He was in the marching band. He's a teacher. He's an adjunct professor. And the just the things that he does in his career. Uh, he seem he seemingly has his hands in a lot of different things, and that's what it takes to be a professional. And that's what I love about about him and his career. And he's super professional. And he talks a lot about how. He was always striving for excellence, always trying to do better, always trying to learn from the situation. And that's what you have to do, especially in, you know, 2019 to, to keep your career moving forward. So some great insight from Derek. So let's get into it with the one and only Derek Phillips. Derek, how are you, my man? I'm doing great, Nick. How about you, man? I'm doing well. So where uh, I know you're on the road. So where in the world are you today? <laughs> good question. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say good question. I don't know. <laughs> right. I'm in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, right now. We are out with Brett Eldridge. We played a show last night in um, San Luis Obispo, California. Okay, so that was a lot of fun. And then uh, it's really cool there, night. Huh? Oh, it's great. It's right on the beach. Nice. And I was actually at. A Villa Beach Resort, and it was it was gorgeous. It was really nice. A little chilly. I forgot. I grew up in California, so I forgot how chilly it was when you're close to the water. But it was it was it was manageable. But it was we had a good time. We had a great crowd. It was cool. Nice. And uh, and then uh, tomorrow we're actually playing tomorrow night in uh, Florence, Arizona. We're doing the uh, Country Thunder Festival, which will be awesome. So um so yeah, so I'm just uh, enjoying the West Coast and uh, having a good time. I dig it. So you're saying you grew up in California? Yes, sir. I was born in San Francisco and uh, grew up in the Bay Area. Hopped around, lived in the South Bay and the East Bay. Where'd you live um, in the East Bay? I lived in West. I, I grew. I was actually I was born in San Francisco, and then uh, when I was two years old, my family moved to Newark, California. Okay, which is like the southern tip of the Bay. 
mm-hmm. and uh, right next to Fremont. And then I also lived um, a little bit in Oakland, California, as well as uh, Pittsburgh and Concord area and Walnut okay. Creek. So okay, I yeah. uh, I just I actually just moved from Livermore. Oh no way! Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. I, I played many a soccer game in Livermore when I was uh, doing travel oh, soccer when I was a kid. Yeah, oh <laughs> nice. yeah. <laughs> nice. I wasn't there. Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't there too long. I was only. Uh, I was only there for about eighteen months. My, my we moved out there for my wife's job. But uh, oh, cool. but but it's cool, man. That whole area, like the Walnut Creek, the East Bay area, uh, is great. Dev- David Garibaldi lived right down the street from me, which was super cool. Oh, that's sweet. I <laughs> yeah. love that dude. Love Such that an dude. amazing talent. He's a beast, man. I, I quote him all the time. Yeah, yeah, he <laughs> still, is still studying his stuff to this day. I think everyone is right, like <laughs> right as they should. <laughs> and, and you talk; it's so funny. You see, you know, you'll see someone throw up and you know an, an Instagram post or something, and you know they're well established, been, been playing for you know a hundred years, and they're like just working out some future sound stuff. You know, right. it's like timeless, hundred percent. It really timeless. is, man. It really is. So you, yeah. I mean, you've you've bounced around a lot, and there's there's so much about your career that I want to talk about because you've, I, I look at it like you've sort of you've you've done all all of the things that you could do, right? So you you teach, <laughs> you uh, you went, you know, you did uh, sort of formal training, you went through marching band, you learned all of this other stuff, but then went out on the road or are on the road still and playing in those settings because. I think that sometimes those get put into into different boxes and totally and don't and don't intersect a lot and sometimes I think that if you are if you've gone too far down the schooling lane it starts to like you sound like that as a player a little yeah. bit um which which you do not at all and yeah. I sh- I should this is a very uh this is a, a very long uh ramble here but the reason, uh, the re- you know, the reason, the the way that I found out about you in the first place was I heard you on Robin uh, on Robin Ford's record on the latest oh, awesome. one, and I was like, "Who is this playing drums?" <laughs> I was like, "And I like full transparency, man. I wasn't, I'm not familiar. I wasn't familiar with your work beforehand." And I said, "Who is this cat playing drums?" <laughs> and, I'm not offended at all. I understand. It's okay. okay. <laughs> And, uh, and I was like, and my, you know, my buddy was driving in the car and he looked it up and I was like, cool, I'm going to get him on the podcast. So, uh, so here we are, man. But, um, just give, give us a little bit of backstory about, I mean, you started playing at a really, really young age. You start what, at like two years old or something like that? Yeah. About, about three is when three. my, my parents realized that maybe we should get them some drum lessons, but I, they didn't really, I didn't really actually take lessons until I was six. But in the meantime, like, I mean, I beat on everything. I beat on the pots and pans when whoever with my mom or dad were cooking, either one of them are cooking in the kitchen. I was usually in the kitchen beating on something mm-hmm. while they're while they're cooking or, you know, if TV is on. I watch TV and then beat on the couch. I was beat on everything. And I got I actually got a kind of a kid's drum set when I was five years old, but it had paper heads and it didn't have real drum heads. Yeah. So, so I destroyed that thing in about a month. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't last very long. So, um. But by the time I was six, they, they, they wanted to see if I was serious about it. So by the time I was six, they actually got me some formal lessons with a, a phenomenal teacher in Fremont. And I would go to his uh, his studio once a week. And uh, it was awesome, man. It was great because he had a percussion setup as well as a drum set setup. And what he would do is he would just teach me notation for the bulk of the lesson. He just put the book, this book called Syncopation right in front of me. He's like, here, we're going to learn how to read music. 
And so uh, we would practice quarter notes and eighth notes and 16th notes and all different groupings. And then at the end of the lesson, he's like, cool, let's jam. And he would put on like a Rush tune or a Prince tune or a Madonna tune. And one of us would be on drum set, the other one would be on percussion. We would just jam, having fun together. And I really credit him for kind of giving me a complete, um, some complete tutelage where was, I, I learned um, – theoretically as well as orally like i use my ears as well as my brain as my brain mm-hmm. reading wise to teach and, I, and so i to this day i still use that format to teach i'm a fan of it's any and all i know there's not a lot of people a lot, a lot of amazing musicians who can't read music are doing amazing mm-hmm. i mean everybody from barry white to danny elfman can read music but can still be successful and then there's you know but also i'm glad that i can go to pretty much any gig you know i've done big band recording sessions where i had to sight read music and so i'm thankful that i could actually step into that arena and do that as well as jam with a blues band on a random tuesday night so mm-hmm. so that's kind of how i got the ball rolling so that really that really kind of planted a big seed in me to go oh, okay this is i wanted to learn music any and every way possible and mm-hmm. you know as a kid i just i heard every type of music in my house and that's what know, i was going to ask you because you seem yeah, like yeah. <laughs> you seem like you you're you love everything I really do. Yeah, I really do. I I just love good music, plain and simple. And so, yeah, I mean, again, to credit my childhood, I mean, I grew up in a house where at any given moment I was hearing jazz, blues, R&B, hip hop, punk rock, heavy metal, classical. And so depending on whoever had access to the radio, you know, that's what I heard. Like my mom, I got my mom. I heard the bulk of like R&B and soul music. So the Motown stuff, the stack stuff. My dad was a big jazz and blues head. He loved Miles Davis. My oldest brother grew up in the 70s, so he he loved Parliament and Earth, Wind & Fire, as well as Led Zeppelin, Elton John. And then my brother, who's a few years older than me, we grew up together in the 80s, and I heard everything from Suicidal Tendencies to Black Flag to Public Enemy and LL Cool J. So so I didn't know any better as a kid. I just you know I just loved music. So it wasn't about, oh, I can't listen to this music. I can't listen to that music. It was just, uh, it's, it's, I hear it all in my home, so why would I? dispute or dismiss any style of music and it's kind of come full circle i'm grateful that i have a career where i literally play every kind of music right it's interesting <laughs> that you that you mentioned that you mentioned um public enemy in with like suicidal tendencies and black flag and all that but <laughs> right, i right. think that like i i've always said this and i don't know you know some people may disagree but i've always thought that they're they're a punk rock band oh public like, enemy oh yeah. yeah oh yeah i don't oh, yeah. know i like Sure, maybe they don't. Maybe they don't sound like the normal punk rock bands. But I'm like, Public Enemy was a punk rock band. I don't care what anybody oh, totally. said. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was definitely an urban hip hop take on it. I mean, just the way because they would have 17 different things sampled all at once. So you heard audio from, you know, you hear a Jimi Hendrix sample mixed with a James Brown sample mixed with audio from a Louis Farrakhan speech to a a news report from Te- Tom Brokaw. I mean, so it was like all in 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 seconds of a track, mm-hmm. and so. So that's that. I definitely think that is a kind of a, a punk rock view of, of how to do music. And the, and the beat was always aggressive and loud. And obviously Chuck's voice was just, you know, it was just so it just grabbed you because it was so authoritative and aggressive, but still contained. You know, you still had like intellectual restraint. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I definitely think I definitely hear a punk rock and I definitely hear the, the similarities in that. And, and, and truth be told, when I listen to that music, you know, I got the same feeling, like the same emotion yeah. came out of me when I listened to Pope, you know, whether it was Chuck D or Henry Rollins, their their voice got me to, to the same to the same emotion. So yeah, yep. totally. I definitely see the parallels. Yeah. Yeah. 
Super underrated band too. Oh, totally. Like, I, totally. I just don't think that they ever got. I mean, they obviously got a lot of recognition, but but nowhere near as much as I I feel like they should have. Like they were agree, way man. they were way ahead of their time. Totally ahead of their time. Totally. Yeah. yeah I, I think yeah, like them and Rage Against the Machine. I feel like mm-hmm. yeah, they would be very very much needed now. <laughs> Could you imagine sure. Public Enemy and Rage Against the Machine at their peak during Black Lives Matter and you know Charlottesville? And yeah. I just all the stuff that's going on out, man. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's man, it's crazy. Like I look at uh, not to go too too far down the rabbit hole, but like you right. brought up Rage Against the Machine, and I'm like, like from a band standpoint, I'm like they may be one of the greatest bands of all time. Oh, they're, like, they're, they're commercially they're great. May, not. You know what I mean? Like they and they right. didn't, they didn't have the staying power and all that. But I'm like, yeah, man. There's no one. There's no one who sounds like Rage. You know, that's like, true. Or Public Enemy, you know? Right. Or Dave exactly. Matthews Band. I was having this conversation with my wife the other day. I was <laughs> like, the reason – I can see why people love Dave Matthews Band. There's no other band that sounds like them. That's true. You know, and it always – Very true. It always sounds like them. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I guess that's – for me, that's always been the, the goal as a drummer is to, you know, you want to find your own sound. You want to you want to create your mm-hmm. own thing. Um, is that something – I'm sure it's something that you that you've worked on, but – is there is there certain things that you yourself, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing you worked on trying to find your own sound. Um, is that something that that you did work on as you know as you were developing because you're coming from all these different all these different backgrounds of playing timpani and playing in orchestras and and playing in marching band and playing with you know playing rock and funk and fusion and jazz and all this stuff. Yeah, you know it took a while to kind of get there because honestly. Because of my, again, this is my journey, but because of my love for all musics, I was just so fascinated by how they work. And I was more concerned about playing the music right than having my own identity, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. And I remember I remember kind of hitting a wall in college where even then, like when I was going to William Patterson in New Jersey, I was surrounded by phenomenal drummers. And they all have their own sound. When they play their own sound, their technique, they're very identifiable. And I kind of felt generic, and I felt like I didn't know how to have my own sound. And because I was just, I spent so much time just learning the art that I didn't have. I didn't know if I had a voice because because I could play timpani and marimba as well as play R and B and rock and jazz and all that. So I, so I, I kind of hit a hit a wall. It's kind of I did a lot of introspection, like trying to figure out: Am I will I get hired? Like, I, like even early in my career after college, I felt. I was getting hired. I always struggle with the question. Am I getting hired because somebody just wants a pretty good drummer or do they want me? Are they trying to hire Derek Phillips or they just need a drummer? Like Elvin Jones got hired because he sounds like Elvin Jones. Right. <laughs> you know, like no one, no one could, no one can sound like him, even though I try to imitate him a lot, but mm-hmm. nobody can sound like him. And so he got hired because of what he brings, where I felt like a lot of times I was getting hired because I just, I just could do the job. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. but now I'm learning as I get older, all of those influences and those and my abilities have allowed me to have my own sound and identity. And and so now people start to recognize me. Like even people call me like, man, are you on this record? Cause it sounds like you. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And so they're identifying that I have a certain sound when I play. So I, and I, and I'll, and truth be told, I'm, I'm not as concerned about having my own sound anymore because I feel like it's going to come out anyway. Mm-hmm. Again, I can I've, I feel like I spend more time trying to do the music justice and just play the best I can. And then, and then and that stuff kind of comes on naturally. Like how I definitely, I definitely found out that the way I hit the drums, because 
every, I mean, you can get 20 guys on a different drum set. And mm-hmm. the way they hit the drums is going to be completely different. If Cindy Blackman got a drum set and then Vinnie Caliuta sat down right after, it would sound like a completely different drum set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, with the same for sure. Yeah, so, of course. So then I start to realize, well, maybe I'm getting a little too hung up on this, and let me just continue to be strive for excellence and being the best drummer in in every situation I'm involved in, rather than try worrying about my own identity. I feel like it's come, it came, it's coming naturally. And so, mm-hmm. and then when I listen back, I do, I, I notice that too. I'm like, oh, okay. I have a tendency to do this. I do this. Um, and, and then, and then, and then I feel like people are calling me because of what I bring, not just because I'm just a drummer now mm-hmm. as I get older. Yeah. So, yeah, makes, but it is a struggle. I feel like it's sense. a struggle. Yeah. I feel like we can struggle with that if we get too caught up in it. So mm-hmm. thankfully I worked myself out of that. So, yeah. And th- you know, like you said, if you, you start overthinking this and then everything you're trying to do is, well, it has to be different because it, this kind of sounds like this person, or this kind of sounds like this right. person. But, but man, I, you know, you look at, you look at any player and you can say, okay, well, who are they checking out? Who are they listening to? And they're, they're going to have elements of, you of know, course. all these people who sound like they have their own styles, yes. you know, they do, but they got to, they cop this thing from this person or cop this thing from that person, which I mean, that's the art of the, that's the art of evolution, right? That's totally, totally. That's the great part about, about drumming. You know, there's people that came before us and, and, uh, and we can go down this journey forever, you know? Totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, like case in point, like John Bottom, like John Bottom is amazing, but you know, he checked out Mitch Mitchell and Elvin Jones when he was young. Like, you know it, you hear it. Yep. So there's there's no denying that. Like it doesn't discredit John Bottom for being John Bottom, but yeah. I mean, you can't help it. I mean, I spent most of my college career trying to sound like Brian Blade and Bill Stewart. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. But it's and, funny. I don't play. Yeah. Go ahead. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, I don't play music that would allow me to sound like them anymore. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but, you know, but that was what, that was my goal was to try and get to close to them as possible. So, mm-hmm. but yeah. And I think it, I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but I think it's hard to get. I think it's hard to to try to emulate someone and try to sound like them unless you understand where they're coming from, who they listen oh, yeah. to, what they grew up on, and all that kind of stuff. Do you agree? Oh yeah, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, t- I mean, it's, it's inevitable. I mean, it's funny when people ask me who my favorite drummer is, and it's funny on the flip side. Sometimes people will claim that I have a certain influence, and it's like somebody I haven't really checked out. Not that I don't respect or appreciate them, but I'm just I haven't spent time. Yeah, I haven't spent time analyzing or checking out their playing but people will hear someone's playing in my playing and maybe it's just a point of reference rather mm-hmm. than them really analyzing my playing but yeah it's hard not to i mean do you know I mean, like specifically who uh sometimes when people say that you sound like i've, I've heard people you know say they hear some billy cobham in my playing mm-hmm. first some people say they heard dave wacko my playing <laughs> which is interesting and i've heard people hear chad smith in my playing so which is interesting again and those are three drummers that I that I respect. I mean, I probably like Vinny out of the three the most. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I have to pick one, no offense to Billy and, and Chad, but in terms of even though I did listen to a lot of Red Hot Chili Peppers on those, so maybe got in there, you know, subconsciously. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't I wasn't necessarily trying to I wasn't transcribing Chad Smith, but since I was such a fan of the Chili Peppers, a lot of his playing got into my playing. Right. So so maybe there is something to that. But yeah, I guess in in terms of me seeking out certain drummers. There are certain drums I sought out, or drums I didn't seek out per se, that people may hear in my playing. So, and that, mm-hmm. those are just a few of them. So, so what yeah. does it look like for you if you are checking someone out, someone out, and you're 
you're really trying to dig in because I think it's one thing to listen, you know, to a couple tunes and say, oh, okay, that's cool. And it's another thing to really get inside a drummer's head and, and, and really analyze and study them as a player. Um, what, what's that process usually look like for you? Oh man. It's, I mean, when that's crazy. Cause when I got to William Patterson, I literally, I mean, I, like I said, you, I already listed all the different music I, I listened to as a child, but when I got to William Patterson for college, I put away anything that wasn't a jazz record and I would go to the library and I'm, I know I'm going to date myself, but I would go to the library at on campus Mm-hmm. And while I would study, I would they still have libraries, of, right? They still have libraries, but okay. <laughs> they but they may not have cassette tapes and and CD mm, players. Okay. So that's what I would do. I would bring a bunch <laughs> of blank cassette tapes to the library and and then check out every CD, like ten CDs at a time. And then I'll walk into this um, CD player room. They actually had a room that it's like a listening room where they have CD players that kind of lap, outline the perimeter of the room. And so what I would do is I would set up every machine and I record every CD and then study in the middle of the room at a, at a large table. And then once one machine was done, I'll just go around the table and flip over the cassette tape and record another album or the rest of the rest of the CD that I was I was recording at that time. So nice. again, I was a college person, so I don't I don't necessarily con- condone bootlegging per se, but as a college <laughs> student, it was a great resource. I, I <laughs> for me and i didn't i didn't sell those cassette tapes it was purely for studying and right. research <laughs> and research and development so, i did the same thing man <laughs> yeah man absolutely absolutely so I, and then it got to the point where i specified by drummer so i would go to the, to the library and i asked for every cd that had tony williams on it and i mm-hmm. would burn every cd and then i would go a few weeks later every cd had philly joe jones on it and i would burn every cd and i would just emerge immerse myself in everyone's style and so and then I would transcribe at least, you know, a couple of songs from each one and just really analyze, like just really take in because I wanted to picture myself behind the kit. Like when I listened to um, the Miles Davis Live 1964 concert, I wanted to know what it's like to be on stage as Tony Williams playing those songs. And so I would and then I would just break down and I would and it I would and also I tell my private instructor who I was checking out and then they would bring more insight to it. Like I remember when I was in my Tony Williams phase, I never left my Tony Williams phase. But but at this time, while I was checking out his records, uh, when I was studying with John Riley, he pointed out something really cool. It's like you notice how when he when he's playing, when he does his drum solos, he uses the right symbol a lot as if it's another tom. And that was like a revelation to me. I was like, yeah, you're right. He would do. He wouldn't just ride on the ride pattern. He would play. Um, he would play rhythms or licks and include the right the ride as if it were a drum it was just it's just another voice right that was that was and yeah so it wasn't like he came like philly joe would come off of it and then do a lot of rudiments and then he'd use it for impact to, to play crashes or whatnot whereas tony would um yeah he would you know he would come off of it and play stuff around and, and integrate it in such a really cool way as just he was orchestrated like another voice so so yeah so that's that's what i felt like it really took me. i wanted to know i wanted to know like what makes these drummers tick not, not only are they incredible but what like how do they feel the beat like the way elvin jones feels the beat is so different than the way max roach feels the beat mm-hmm. so like well well like elvin has such a fat quarter note and it and it kind of wobbles it's in time but it's it's really it, it 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 can shift in terms of where he's feeling the pulse of the quarter note where max is really on he really pushes that he's really on top of the beat so so yeah i would just i just just soak up yeah and just see how they played behind different artists like 
like listen to Elvin Jones play behind Sonny Rollins and then listen to how he played behind Coltrane. And mm-hmm. so, or, or even listen to how he played or, orchestral percussion on Sketches of Spain. So I'd really just really dig in deep and just try to get their flavor and understand what, what makes them tick. And, and, and thankfully with, with, the, with YouTube, I can go back and check out videos and see actually how they're hitting drums. And, you know, right. it wasn't just speculation in terms of how, how, you know, how the recording sounds or the, how loud or how hard or where the stick is, where the butt of the stick is in their hand right. or, you know, yep. how, you know, all that stuff. So that's these kids, like that. these kids got it easy these days. Seriously, Nick, I'm telling you, man, <laughs> it's so easy. I tell my students all the time, like, bro, you have no excuse. You have no excuse. You can go anytime, check out all these recordings, see video footage. There's no reason why you can't be studying this stuff. There's no reason. So yeah, I yeah. I remember the first time I ever saw uh, Zig play Sissy Strut, Ooh. and I was like, right. oh. Right now, I was like, now it makes total sense. The way I was like, I've been playing this wrong, and I could never get it to feel right. And it's because his right hand drops back down and plays a snare. And I was exactly. like, exactly. I was Dude, like, how I, did I? Totally, totally. That messed me up. It's funny you said it because I remember the first time I didn't notice until I saw him live, and it was a total shock because I I played with Charlie Hunter for years, mm-hmm. and um, I went back to the barrier to visit family for the holidays. And this is after he got a new band. So I went to see his show and, and he, he let me come check it out. And I hung with them um, in between sets and then talked to Tony Mason was the drum at the time. So we hung and talked okay. and then he then tried to say, Hey, you want to sit in on the song? And he said, sure. And so the start of the second set, he had me sit in and we played some, I can't remember what one of the songs that we recorded on a record previous years before that. And we had fun. He's like, yeah, that's great. And then, so I leave the stage, I walk upstairs and my wife and I were sitting in the balcony. So I walk up, as soon as I sit back down next to my wife, Zig comes on stage. I was like, what? Nobody told me Zig was here. <laughs> and then, and he did it. He did the 60 star groove. Like, they didn't play 60 star, but he played that groove. And his left hand stayed on the hi-hat. His right hand came back to the snare. I was like, what? That's how yep. he does it? And that's and the crazy thing, it's funny you say this, because I was literally teaching a bunch of students last week how to, how to play a bunch of Zig of his stuff. And I said, what's great about Zig is, like, you, you know where he comes from by the way he plays. Like you, the the New Orleans is so undeniable. The second line is so undeniable in his playing. Mm-hmm. And if you watch his hands, no matter what rhythm he's playing, his hands fit perfectly to the grid. Like right hand alternate sticking, right hand led alternate sticking, no matter what. So even when he does that that breakdown section on that that with a straight up second line, if you put that to a grid, his hands line up perfectly with right hand led alternate sticking. I was like. That's because he played, you know, he played in brass bands and street yeah. bands, and, and it's like, yeah, it's crazy, it's crazy. It's, but it's like, but that's what makes him sound like the way he sounds. Yep. like. it's like you said, yeah, yep, yeah. I the thing I've always loved about Zig's playing is like, it sounds so simple. Mm-hmm. And then you go to play, and you're like, then you go try play exactly. <laughs> and you're like, you feel like your you feel like your legs are tied to your hands Bro. or something. You're like, what is Bro. going on? Yeah. And it, so it's all and like you listen to it and you're like, he's not even you're like, he's not even really playing anything. And then you right. sit down and try to play it and you're like, oh, my God, he's playing. So how does he play all this? Exactly. It's so it's so dense, so dense and beautifully orchestrated and so syncopated and so much kick drum. He's a so much. Yeah. Kick drum. Again, that second line influence. Like, I mean, like, what is it? Hey, last minute. There's so much kick drum in that group, but it's it doesn't feel it doesn't feel overwhelming or inundated with too many notes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what you hear the whole song. Like, 
How you get away with that? There's all kinds of kick drum <laughs> and no downbeat. How you get away with that, man? <laughs> but that's Zig, man. And it, that's yeah, that's why he's who he is, man. Yeah, oh, it's groove, so good. It grooves its ass off. So so good, man. Yeah. Uh, the one thing that you mentioned that I think it would be good to talk talk about and touch on is the idea of where people feel the groove and it's such an like I always say this but like these types of things to me are are where the magic lies but it's hard like it's hard to read this in a book it's hard to you know go through particular exercises and Benny Grab I don't know if you've checked out his art and science of groove DVD Um, I have it but I've seen a lot of videos that dude's a beast so he put out this whole art and science of groove uh, DVD there's no notation there's no like there's nothing written and everything and they were sort of like eh, we don't think this is going to work but it's all <clears> conceptual <throat> things about where you can feel you know where you feel the quarter note where you're where the metronome is falling and all that sort of stuff um but talk about how you how maybe you've worked on where you're feeling the time one like how 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 can you hear where people are feeling the time and then two, how do you work on it yourself of where you're, you know, if you're pushing or you're pulling or you're, you know, you're hearing it as, as a fat quarter note or you're hearing it as, you know, 16th notes or, you know, I think that I, I, I like I said, I just think there's so much magic there, um, yeah. but it's really hard to learn. It's really hard to, I don't want to say it's a lot hard to learn, but it's, it's hard to learn if you don't know what you're looking for. It's hard to teach, you know, uh, so I'd love to hear, you know, some of your advice on that. Yeah, definitely. Well, one thing I, that you know, you you when you're asking that question, I thought about when like when was my first impact on hearing how people play the beat and how people play around the beat. And my first experience with that was hearing James Gatson play um, "Use Me" with Bill Withers, mm-hmm. and the way the way that he swings the sixteenth notes, where it's not that swung, but it's not exactly straight, and it's somewhere in the middle. And even as a kid, I, I I realized there was something different. Like I almost felt like he was breaking the law because it wasn't <laughs> purely straight and it wasn't purely swung. It was somewhere in the middle. And I was like, I literally thought as a kid, like seven years old, going, like he's getting. Wait, is he allowed to do that? I mean, just the way how he changed the space between the notes in such a way that that was different than what I had ever heard before. Right. And he does the same same thing on Kiss of My Love. Same yes. that same like you're same like what, what is this? Yeah. What same are thing what with, are these yeah. what are those notes things that he's playing? <laughs> yeah, same thing to express yourself, you know? Yep. Even yep. on I mean even I mean even it's probably more subtle, but even on like Got to Be Real with Cheryl Lynn is a disco mm-hmm. song, but that the way he puts the way he feels the swing in that just slightly is is amazing. It's amazing. And so I mean he's probably one of the guys I, I emulate the most like if, if i'm at soundcheck you're either going to hear a james gasson groove a clyde supple for groove or a john bottom groove chances are right. so yeah <laughs> excuse me <clears throat> so yeah so i definitely that's when it kind of piqued my interest about oh there's ways of feeling the beat or playing the beat that can be different from the drummer to the drummer i thought as a kid i think i thought there's just one way you just play it completely straight completely swung and this is how you do it and it just blew my mind and then, uh, so then it got to me to thinking like, okay, well, how, like listen to different music where, yeah, it felt laid back or it felt really on top of the beat. And, and, you know, for me, I, I feel like I've, I've learned and, and 
and it's not in some like one aspect sometimes that's someone's identity like they only play one way some people just play laid back some people just play on top of the beat where i've learned based on the situation i have to switch it up you know so like i used to play with this band called the dynamites was like kind of a retro funk soul band in nashville Mm -hmm. with an amazing vocalist named charles walker and then we would do some old school songs that definitely went towards the meters and james brown and I remember the, the band leader saying, well, well, we're not going to swing this one as much, so swing this one a little less. Or or lay back with this one, or, or this one will be more on top of the beat. And so, and then I was like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. And so, usually in a in a more rock setting or pop country, which is kind of the bulk of stuff I play nowadays, I definitely feel it. Unless unless it's supposed to have that swampy feel, generally I'm I'm either right on the click and I'm really on top of the beat, just to, if it needs to rock. But now, playing with someone like Brett, where it's more soulful, I tend to lay back more. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm still with the click, it's just I'm I'm laid back. I'm I'm putting a little more space between the notes, even though it's still in time. So it's all about. I mean, it really gets to the point where it's really about what are you trying to emote? What are you trying to get the audience to feel? Mm-hmm. So if you want them to feel that sense of urgency, that sense of excitement, yeah, definitely put it on top of beat, gives it to them. If you want them to feel, you know, if you want to be a little sexier or a little bit. Um, relaxed or just groovier than laying back but and um but yeah so that that's something i had to learn definitely that okay there's a certain each song or each style can have its own treatment where there is no kind of law that this is mm-hmm. the way we play rock this is the way we play jazz right. so but yeah but definitely hearing um i think what what allowed me to hear how other players what started in jazz really like hearing other players how they feel the beat was how they lock up with the bass player, and and that hearing hearing how they're quoting on the ride symbol matches whatever the bass player is doing. That's kind of that kind of unlocked it for me as I got older too. Like, you know, okay, how is you know how is uh, you know, um, how how is uh Philly Joe, how is he feeling Paul Chambers's pulse when he plays? Mm-hmm. How is Tony feeling Ron Carter's pulse? And how are they approaching? And sometimes, and a lot of times it's the friction is what's great about it. Sometimes, you know, when the bass player is on top of the beat and then when the drummer's laying back, that creates a certain tension that, that, particularly in jazz, that gives it that the feeling that it's supposed to have or just creates a certain synergy that's really fascinating. So, yeah, so I think that's where it came in. Just, okay, where does the rap pattern unlock with the bass line? That's, that kind of unlocked a lot of things in terms mm-hmm. of how certain drummers feel. You know, whether they're on top of the beat, behind the beat, right on the beat, or changing from song to song or bass player to bass player that they connect with. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I th- I'm sure that you can, re- I don't, well, maybe you can't, but uh, I remember the first time I ever just completely buried the click. And yeah. the click disappears, and you're like, and I literally thought that, that the message was. You thought something was off. wrong, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I was like, oh, this thing's, this thing, and then I stopped playing, and I was like, Wait a minute, it just turned off for a second or something and then, you know, I <laughs> I I realized at some point uh that that was a good thing. But but then once you realize that wait a minute, if I can bury the click, then I can drop back a little bit and I can hear the click, you know, before or after the notes that right. I'm playing and I can and then you're like, wait a minute, I can control exactly where I'm hearing this. You know, exactly. and then you can control where you're hearing it if you're playing a groove and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I think that is the point where things really start to open up as a player, mm-hmm. and you realize, like you said, there's no rules to it anymore. 
you know, you're not like, oh, I have to play an eighth note like this. Yep. And I th- and we we touched on this a little bit earlier about the idea of you know playing in in marching band particularly or or any time oh, yeah. any type of drum corps that that a lot of times people end up on the kit and they can't get out of that that really tight you know squared up playing was yep. that something that you that you struggled with or did you always just hear music through the things that you were playing you know, those, I don't know if I say struggle with, but it's something I had to be conscious of. Mm-hmm. It was like whenever I would go, you know, when I was because I got to march with the Blue Devils, and that was great. And I mean, everything is on the click again. You're you're all, you're trying to play uniform with nine other people if you're in the snare line, so it's all about metronomic approach and being as as precise on the beat as possible. So, so it's definitely I, said, I had to keep reminding myself. So when I would go play. With the jazz band, I had to remind myself, okay, I need to lay back. Okay, this is this is something different. I'd have a different approach. Or, and I think the beauty of playing so many different types of music, I didn't really have to totally remind myself, or I didn't feel like I, it wasn't a struggle. I guess you could say mm-hmm. it was just, but it but it was it was something I was cognizant of. And it, I mean, I mean, shoot, I mean, I I definitely I know for me, I definitely had a tendency, of, and it, it might have been because of my. By playing with a drum drum corps and marching band, that I had to relax because I had the tendency to play on top of the beat and had to learn how to how to relax. But I think a lot of that was kind of subliminal because of the music I heard, and so I had those influence. So it wasn't like if someone said, "Hey, we play the songs," kind of like, kind of a Coltrane vibe. I just knew, okay, I have to approach it like Elvin. It wasn't like, well, man, I have to lay back now so I can sound like Elvin. It wasn't, you know what I mean? I never had mm-hmm. that. That was never the process, but it was so that was kind of already learned but there were times i had to kind of, i definitely had to remind myself like like way back man this is this is not that kind of song you know, right <laughs> <laughs> so or just, or just pl- yeah and sometimes it and it doesn't take much and, and like i tell my students sometimes it's uh it's it's physiological like sometimes putting the stick in the fingers more or, or just relaxing can give mm-hmm. you the feel that you want so it's not you know it's not something that that's it's not necessarily in your playing per se, it's really just what is your body feeling, and so right. or like you know having certain thoughts, feeling you know getting to a rehearsal or or a gig late or feeling rushed or feeling like you don't know the song because you don't have time to prepare, and so you have that that anxiety that makes you play ahead of the beat or rush or tighten up a little bit, and so it's kind of a reminder of like you know feel my right body. I had to remind myself like well how does my body feel right now? And I tell my te- I tell my students this too like how do, how do I feel right now? And how is it affecting the music? And sometimes that's it's just that simple of taking a breath. <laughs> I remember yeah. I, when I I played with a uh, Greg Osby, great jazz saxophonist years ago, and uh, Jason Moran was a piano player of the time, killing piano player and composer. He actually did the the score for the uh, the, the movie Selma. Brilliant, oh, nice. yeah, brilliant dude. And he would he would literally write on his hands before he went on stage. Breathe. He write breathe on both hands. And so huh. whenever he's playing piano, he looked down. He'd remind himself to breathe because, you, as you know, playing if you're not a vocalist or playing a wind instrument, it's so easy to forget to breathe. Mm-hmm. Especially when you go to do a drum solo or a drum fill. Oh, go. my. <gasps> dude, Nick, for real, dude. <laughs> for real. <laughs> I'm funny guilty of that, too. I, dude, that literally happened to me last night. So I'm playing with Brett. And I love playing with Brett Eldridge. Phenomenal singer. Great dude. And um, we're having just a good time at our gig. And in the middle of the song, he... he 
walk, during the guitar solo, he walks back to one of the talkback mics. He's and he because we could all hear his voice, but no one else can. Right uh, in the audience. So he so he gets on that mic and he says, "Hey, let's give Derek a drum solo." And I got on my mic and I said, "No way!" Because <laughs> no, I mean, it's not. I mean, to me, that's not that kind of part. I mean, I I mean, I love playing the drums, but. I'm there to do a job, and in this kind of gig, you know, if on a jazz gig, I'm like, okay, I'll do a solo. Even though as an older I get, I'm less um, willing to. No, I don't say willing, but less excited to play a drum solo. I just, mm-hmm. I'm all, I love playing the groove now and the connection with people, and so I, t- I like to find the the improvisational moments within the music. Like, how mm-hmm. can I add my little elements here and there while still doing my job as a drummer, as opposed to having a fully exposed solo where I'm the one playing. So I was like, no, man, let me just groove. And so, but then the musical director, the keyboard player is like, all right, we're going to break down here. And in the, just Derek. And so I had like an eight bar, like it was only eight bars. And for the most of it, I just kept the groove. I didn't do anything fancy. I just kept the groove. And then I did like a variation on the groove right. and then ended with something fancy at the end and brought the band back in. But it was like, even that. And then I noticed like, I was hearing the click a little differently. Cause I, I was like, like you said, and they was like, Oh, that cook was buried while we're while we're grooving when the whole band was in. But then at the end of my solo, I was like, "Oh, <laughs> yep." The click, the click. Someone moved my click. What what they do that? I mean, I wasn't off beat, but <laughs> somebody it was, moved my click. Yeah, exactly. But it was definitely <laughs> I was definitely way on top of the beat compared to where I was eight bars earlier. So right. But yeah, at least one he sprung it on me and two. It's like that's not my. I'm not here to solo, but yeah, but but it was cool. I'm not just dispersing the opportunity to improvise and solo and 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 i i consider it as a compliment for him to want me to showcase a little something but it's like you know hey let me just stay in the groove let me just stay by the click where it's safe and keep the groove going <laughs> right <laughs> i don't have to think i just you just go i don't have to think about all right. the licks the licks that i've been practicing in my in my spare time and figuring out how exactly. i'm gonna put them in here <laughs> right exactly because you know like it's easy to go to go through your Rolodex of stuff that you can do. And it's like everything I was looking at before he said, take a jump. So I was like, man, I can't use any of this stuff here. <laughs> right. Right. And then I was like, okay, I found something. And then, and then I thought of, and then when I channeled, okay, let me, let me channel a little Bernard Purdy mixed with some Clyde and I'll be okay. So that, that, that was the safe zone. That was the appropriate zone in that moment rather than trying to channel some, you know, some Mickey Roker or, you know, Tony Williams or something. That that would not have been the right call. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like if you uh, if you can if you can channel uh, if you can channel channel Bernard and Clyde, you'll be fine. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't, it know funny, it was, I, think, I don't think those cats ever played a wrong note. Oh my gosh! Tell me about it. I mean, <laughs> uh, I still love off of what they do, but it's like, but at the same time, it's like I I was after that thought, saying, well, why should I be concerned with that? Like you think of all the amazing drummers that are out that everyone emulates that have a intense jazz background like steve Gadd and steve jordan probably the two guys probably the two guys i i think about the most in when i'm doing sessions when i'm in the studio mm-hmm. and it's like they can just sit on the groove for all day but then they can create amazing parts and then they can all and they can both improvise so it's like some for a while like particularly when i moved to nashville i, I kind of felt like i had to throw away a lot of my jazz influence if you will in order to to, to get into the scene and so but those guys find a great way where they don't have to deny who they are they just it's just it's just taking the right choice it's just picking the right ingredients for a specific recipe and it's like you have a whole cupboard full of different spices and 
and whatnot, but you're not going to use all of them every time you, you make something. So I just, I had to remind myself, oh yeah, I can, you know, yes, I have, there's a wide assortment here, but I can only, I only need salt and pepper for this recipe. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, so it's okay. So, so, and it's, it's, and yeah, and trying to, and, but that, I guess the hard side is coming back to that is like knowing if, if I got to go in the cupboard and get more spices, like, okay, do they want garlic and cumin? Maybe they just want <laughs> garlic. Maybe they just want garlic. I'll stick with the garlic. If I give them cumin, that might be a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, I like food. Uh, sorry, food. Uh, dude, <laughs> you're, uh, you're preaching to the choir. I grew up. I grew up in the restaurant business. So, oh, there you my go. My family, uh, yeah, my family's own restaurants since the seventies. Oh, I don't like cooking different. as much anymore. I just, I like, I just like eating now. Right, right. So, <laughs> That's I awesome, be, man. I want to be on the other side of the of the kitchen. So, yeah, we, yeah, we got. Well, we, we'll continue just that conversation after we're done here. Man. Nice, yeah. yeah. Nice. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> Hey, do yourself a favor and check out Promark's Select Bounce Drumsticks. These sticks give players the ability to fine-tune their standard stick model to fit their playing style. Let me give you an example. If you play rock or country or metal, check out the Forward Balance. These are front-weighted and give you enhanced power and speed. If you are playing jazz or funk or gospel, then check out the Rebound Balance. These are rear-weighted and gives you more finesse and more agility. Plus, they're made by Promark, which you know you're going to get a quality product because they control the entire process from the forest to the finished drumstick. Plus, they're paired by pitch and by weight, so there's zero guesswork when you're grabbing that stick out of your stick bag. Do yourself a favor. Check them out by going to Promark.com. Do you know why when you tune a drum, you're supposed to go diagonal across the drum? That's because your drum is flawed. I hate to break it to you, but your drum is flawed because of the way that the edge is the typical edge doesn't allow the drum head to sit on it properly so when you tighten down one lug it causes the drum head to shift and pop up on the other side that's why you have to tune it diagonally but now with the new sonic clear edge from mapex that's a thing of the past the sonic clear edge allows the head to sit flush so it promotes ease of tuning increased shell resonance and optimal tonal clarity so you're going to have to do a lot less work and get a lot greater sound. To learn more about the Sonic Clear Edge, go to mapexdrums.com. I have no doubt that as a drummer, you've had ringing in your ears. What you may not realize, though, is anytime you have ringing in your ears, that is permanent hearing loss. And it can happen from just playing drums at a low volume for a few minutes. Now, you have a couple options. You can get those foam earplugs, and they're made for construction workers and snoring spouses, and they're, they're pretty ugly, and they don't really fit well. Or... You can get Vibes High Fidelity Earplugs. These are earplugs that are made specifically for musicians just to lower the decibels by 22 decibels. So you get crystal clear clarity while protecting your ear. Plus, they're one size fits all because they have a bunch of different tips that you can use. They're washable, they're reusable, and they're super discreet. So people aren't even going to know that you're using them. They're great. So great. In fact, they were even featured on Shark Tank. The best part is I've teamed up with Vibes so you can get a pair delivered right to your door for 20 bucks. All you have to do is go to discovervibes.com and use the promo code resource15. That's resource and the number one and the number five. You can spend a lot of Money down the road on hearing aids and all that stuff, or you can get yourself a pair of vibes. Go to discovervibes.com, use the promo code resource15, that's resource15, and save your ears. 
there's some stuff I want to talk to you about um, in terms of career and and there's one thing that I that I talk about a lot on the podcast and this idea of well there's a couple of things one about the idea that you don't have to be full time to be all in and two mm-hmm. if you work a day job and you play on the side there's nothing wrong with that and my whole thing is like I say it a lot is that I, I want to change the narrative of mm. what it means to be a successful musician and absolutely it you know. If you do it full time, great. And if you don't make, if you don't do it full time, that doesn't make you any less of a musician, or it doesn't make you any less of a professional, or or it doesn't make you less accomplished or anything like that. Absolutely. Um, and I know that that reading some stuff about you, you know, there were times where you're like, I had to supplement my income, I had to work here, I had to work there. Um, I'd love to talk to you about that and just get your take on that idea of sure, maybe you do want to do it full time, but like. Some people may not want to do it full time, or some people may have to do it full time and feel guilty about it, which I don't feel that they should. Right. So, uh, but I'd love your take on that. Well, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, unfortunately, I think you probably experienced this too. Whether I mean, what you're saying you're trying to combat it, whether well, there's a stigma that you're not a real musician if you if you teach or if you like, or a case in point, like in Nashville, particularly, there's there's a stigma. I think people are slowly trying to defeat it or capable of defeating it. Whereas you're either a live musician or a session musician, you, you know, so you can't and never the two shot meet. And uh, I think there are a lot of people breaking down those walls. And uh, thankfully I, I, I feel like I'm becoming one of those people where, you know, I can go to a session and still provide, meet the needs of the artist and the producer and, and do my job, but still go out. And, and truth be told, there are a lot of session guys that have live gigs. I mean, some of the baddest guys, like Greg Morrow is one of my favorite session drummers in Nashville. He still plays with Trisha Yearwood. He'll still go out and take gigs and go on the road. Mm-hmm. Does that make him less of a drummer because he's working on the road now as, a, as well as doing sessions? No. I mean, Chad Cromwell, he's he's doing, he kills a lot of sessions and he still goes and works. I mean, great guitar player, Rob McNelly, who's a phenomenal guitar player, who does tons of session work, played on a bunch of records that we we've heard on the radio, but still goes out with, with Bob Seger. Right. So if those guys can do it, and granted, they've proven themselves in the studio, so they I think people are giving them more they've kind of earned their gold card, if you will. So they can mm-hmm. so they can literally do whatever they want. Whereas, you know, that was something I struggled with. And so I had to that was something I had to navigate was really tricky because being a teacher and being a live drummer that it was hard. There were times it was a struggle to get the notoriety as a as a session drummer. And uh, but I just had to keep doing it and proving myself. And so you know, and and thankfully, and, I'm, and conversely, I I think one, there's enough work out there in Nashville, and two, I think that for at least from my experience, I've found artists and and situations that I feel like I was the right call for it anyway. So yeah, you could there I could tell you ten drummers that will kill any session of phenomenal studio drummers, but when I co- I came into those situations and I was able to bring something to those experiences that I think the artists and the producing it and the whole band for that matter i appreciate it you know mm-hmm. and i, I look like even even like having a jazz experience and trying to go into nashville like that was something that that was a struggle too you know early on in order to get get some credibility you know it was it was it was kind of a bad thing to be looked on as the drummer like i would get gigs because I, oh he's a guy who could play jazz and sometimes that's a good thing sometimes it's a bad thing but but it was something I had to be cognizant of and really 
So it's like, well, if they think I'm the jazz guy, well, I would just go in the shed and I'm going to learn how to play to a click. I would study all this. I'm going to go learn. You know, I, 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 would, I went to a Jeff McCarl fair. I kind of did what I was in, when I was in school. Mm-hmm. I would just immerse myself in certain drummers. So I, I, was, I learned every song on Toto's Africa record, just every lick, everything that Jeff McCarl played, because I knew it. Everybody in the studio loves Jeff McCarl because Toto gets referenced all the time. And then I would go, okay, let me well, let me do. And then I did Steve Jordan's playing on Continuum from John Mayer because everyone loves that record. Right. So I was just again, I just oh, it's incredible. I mean the, so the, I, just, the I mean the Toto record's great too. I mean, oh yeah, you can't argue with either one of those. Oh no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. So yeah, so I just so it it gets to the point where I was just well, I'm just going to show people that I'm capable of it. And 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 it's funny because people will people are shocked. I even had this happen to me a couple of days ago while I was doing the show. And I was playing with this band that I'm a part of that's kind of more rock funk. So they almost like a Red Hot Chili Peppers thing. It's like Wolfpack meets Weezer meets Prince meets Red Hot Chili Peppers. So, And then uh, the drummer from the nice. other band was like, man, he was, it's funny because it came full circle. He's like, man, I thought you were just a meat and potatoes drummer. But to hear you play, he heard me play with this jazz group that opened up for Corey Henry. And a lot of improvisation. It was definitely hip hop based, but a lot of improv. I had a weird setup. I had like three snare drums and one of the snare drums as a tom. He's like, man, I didn't know you could do stuff like that. I was like, well, that's 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 just what I a do. A lot you so, don't know about me, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. And so yeah, so definitely, so to kind of go back to the point you're making, I did, I definitely had to, hate for lack of a better term, play down my jazz ability just to get accepted in the session world. And and I think when I was able to get gigs, when you get gigs with people with names, like getting the Hank Williams Jr. gig. That I think that gave me some more credibility with people, because like, oh well, if Hank Jr. likes them, then surely because honestly, that music is not it's it's basically like playing a a classic rock gig, which is kind of the vibe that's demanded with a lot of session work, and so so people knowing that one I could play with Hank Jr. and mm-hmm. two I could play the play that music, you know, well there's really no improvising whatsoever. None. Right. <laughs> so like the only time I the only time I take a drum solo is if we needed more time. Like Hank, Hank leaves the stage while we're still playing. So if we need to kill another three minutes, then I would do a little drum solo. But other than that, is it is literally meat and potatoes. And mm-hmm. so I think people knowing that about me kind of helped to break those barriers. And because and, I remember, you know, get, I got a teaching gig like ten years ago. I teach at Middle Tennessee State and Vanderbilt University, and a lot of musicians were telling me. A lot of my friends were saying, maybe you shouldn't tell people that you teach, so they accept you as a real musician. Quotes. In there and uh yeah so it's like because i think a lot of people still adhere to that weird uh cliche that those who can't teach so it's yeah. like oh you can get a gig so you got to teach it's like no i just i've learned a lot and i enjoy actually enjoy teaching mm-hmm. so, i mean omar also, hakeem is a teacher like right and dougal chancellor was teaching until he yes. passed away i mean yeah. do chester thompson teaches in nashville i mean he plays the he got to play Probably the most quoted drum lick in music history, <laughs> in the air. The Phil Collins in the air. Yep, yep. Dude, I mean, come on. <laughs> yep. So, if they can teach, surely you know, surely anybody can. You know, they're they're just, they're just people with great experience and great ability, and and are capable and willing to share that knowledge. I said, well, why why can't I? I've learned a lot. I did I did some stuff. I've been around. Why why can't I teach? And mm-hmm. So, I so think, I think that there's that, yeah. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think I finally get to a place where it's not as, for me personally, it's not a stigma, but I think a lot of people still have to fight 
those those stereotypes and 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 kind of are still butting up against those those walls but yeah, yeah that's all well I, I think that there's also a lot of people who can't hack it and teach true and true. maybe shouldn't be teaching or maybe you know don't like teaching but they can't make enough money playing so they teach to supplement their income and then there's guys like mm-hmm. you who can hack it like you're doing this interview from the back of a tour bus right now you can obviously <laughs> hack it you know but you enjoy teaching and you want to you want to spread that knowledge so i i don't know if it i don't know if that's ever going to change i i do think that and you know correct me if i'm wrong but i do think that a lot more people are teaching now because of the stability because you know let's be honest the music industry the music industry for for touring side musicians is not what it used to be and oh, yeah. and if you enjoy teaching and it supplements your income then why tell me again why you wouldn't want to do that you know like right. that doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> yeah and it's like because some idiot that's in you know that's in his basement it's like oh they're not a real musician it's like dude you haven't played a gig in three years get out of my face with that yeah exactly sorry i get a little <laughs> angry about that kind of stuff <laughs> I, hey, I, hey i hear you nick i totally hear you and you for know. me also you know being getting married very young having kids straight out of the gate you know when i was 21 i was already married with kids right. so that was another you know so teaching was was mandatory <laughs> mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh well, I I don't have any gigs, I can't teach. So no, no, I have to pay for diapers, so I need to teach. So, right, right. So yeah, so and um, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I had a lot of kids, so that's why I still <laughs> teach. <laughs> How many kids do you have? <laughs> I have five kids, man. Wow, five kids. Yeah. Well, thankfully they're they're older. They're three of them already out of the house. So, but still, did I'm you still... know that if you have ten kids, you don't have to pay income tax? That must be why Kim with Denard has so many kids. Was it Kim? No, it wasn't Kim with Denard. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, that I didn't know that. That makes sense. Oh, don't, I mean, don't nobody. Thing. I don't want anybody to like quote me on that. And and you better, uh, please consult a uh, a tax professional. Right, you, right. Before you well, that take makes it. sense. <laughs> well, I know Keith Urban's drummer Seth Roush, who um I adore in every single way. He has six kids, so maybe maybe he, that's what he's trying to get to. Maybe he's working his way up. <laughs> he's working his way up exactly. Not that he needs to worry about that with, you know, he's playing with Keith Urban. Sure, right. he's okay. <laughs> I'm sure he's doing all right. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, I mean, well, yeah. Unfortunately, I, we had to stop at five, so there's that. <laughs> well, I think five is five is a, five is a lot. Five is good. Um, five is plenty. Yeah. So, so how do you balance that with the fact that you know you? And I'm guessing you got married at 21. Uh, and it's been a it's been a um, from what I've read it was sort of a rocky beginning of your career and you were sort of trying to figure out exactly how how you were going to make it work. I know you were working part time and you like you said you had to start teaching and all that sort of stuff. So you've had a a very supportive wife who who has uh, who supported you through this whole thing. And then you have five oh, yeah. kids. How do you now now that your career is where it is? How are you balancing that with being on the road and and time management and making sure? I mean, you said your kids are older now, but but how are you balancing all that? It's a juggling act, but I think over the past twenty-two years, we both just kind of learned how to how to do it. It's, I mean, because it, it's always been a juggling act, so I guess I, there's nothing new. But mm-hmm. but I mean, I mean, case in point, like you know, it's the end of the semester, so I have students where I, I've got to work out the last few lessons as well as schedule exams, and I'm actually going to be in Australia while the exams are happening. So I'm gonna have to have instructors videotape it, and some 
exams I have to have earlier before I leave. And then on top of that, I still have two kids at home. So it's, you know, everything we're figuring out who's going to pick up who from soccer practice and, and um, you know, who's going to take our daughter to her rugby game and, and all that. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's nothing new. It's just, it's just, you just get used to it. Like last week was a crazy week. Like I was, I had a session every day last week, but I was, I was, it was like, I was double duty every day. It was, I would like one day I did a full day sessions and then that night I had a gig. And then the next day I taught half the day and then did a half day of session work. And then the next day I did makeup lessons and then did, and then did a gig that night. And then the next day I did a session in the morning and then a rehearsal that evening. And so, and in the middle of that, trying to navigate, you know, how kids get picked up and grocery shopping and all that. And, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, you just, you just get used to it. It's kind of like. Becomes you know, normal, right? Yeah. It's just a jigsaw puzzle. Just to try to make the pieces fit. And yeah. It's just, thankfully we have the technology, like having these great um, smartphones where I can put my calendar in, but that's synced up with my wife and my kids. <coughs> so we, excuse me. So we all know each other's schedule and getting alerts ahead of time so we all know okay what's coming up okay okay dad has a gig so he can't pick me up from soccer and then i okay i guess i'm going home with my friend my teammate and then he'll pick me up later so right you know yeah and then in the meantime yeah still fielding calls for work coming in like because i mean sometimes you get called the day before like hey i need you for a session here or or dates change and like you know i had something scheduled two months ago and then and then brett my book a whole string of dates. I'm like, oh, okay. Now I gotta figure that out. I gotta get the sub for these gigs I committed to, or so. Yeah, it never really is. Everyday, everyday uh, management of of you know sorting out and piecing everything together. And so mm-hmm. it's I kind of like it. I think my my wife and I kind of build in a certain way where we kind of enjoy chaos. Managing chaos is kind of right. what we're both right. good at. I guess that's why we're so good at getting married young, having a bunch of kids. So we can manage the chaos. So, yeah, I kind of, I kind of, I enjoy the fun of that of, of problem solving and and uh, figuring out how is this all going to work and, and I, finding yeah. solutions to complex problems. So, yeah, yeah. you just me too. I'm this, I'm this. I, you know, I like, I, I like sort of organized chaos. Yeah, I do. Yeah, definitely. To definitely. to piggyback a little bit on on what we were just talking about about day gig, about touring, about work family, kids, all of that. A lot of times when we, when, when I talk to, you know, people email me or they'll ask me for advice. And a lot of times when I give advice, it normally, like most people go into like negative mode, right? Where they're like, well, that wouldn't work because of this. And I know like, I'm not gonna be able to do that because of this or, and a lot of times, you know, I'll say you should get a day gig or you should maybe try to get a teaching gig or try to get hooked up with a college. And it's always like, well, that's not going to work because I need to be on the road or, or, and, and usually it's like, well, how many gigs are you getting called for now to go on the road? And you're not getting called on any. So let's cross that bridge and come to it. <laughs> right. But, um, to snuff out some of those, some of those excuses, how, how does it work with your, with your current employer if you need to go on the road or are you accepting gigs around your work schedule? Um, are they cool with you teaching some things remotely? How does that work? I mean, thankfully at both of the schools that they, uh, I'm an adjunct faculty. So it's not, one, I'm not full time. So that gives me a lot of freedom. And two, I create my own schedule, which kind of allows me a lot of freedom. So, you know, case in point, well, like, 
since I'm going to Australia in a couple of weeks, the last week of school, I'm not going to be there. So I actually had to move. I told my students, hey, we're going to have two lessons this week. We're going to be on Monday and then we're going to do makeups on Thursday. And I have I haven't got any got any beef with the, the schools at all they allow me that freedom their, their, their bottom line is that as long as they get 12 lessons a semester then they're happy the students get what they paid for mm-hmm. they don't get in trouble with anybody so so if that's if that's where the line is drawn i'm like cool well as long as they get their lessons they don't really care how i get them in as long as i get them in so so thankfully i have the freedom to work my teaching schedule around my performing schedule and and, and i think that it may be Sometimes it gets a little hairy with the students that's trying to organize schedules because they all have lives too. A lot of the kids mm-hmm. work jobs and and dealing with their class schedule and, and commuting whatnot. But um, but I think I think by and large they know I'm missing because I'm actually working. I'm actually doing something that they plan to do once they get out of college. They see it as an asset because they're like, oh, he's literally doing it. Oh, he just played on this record. Oh, he just oh he just got back from the UK. So. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's a it's an added tool for my teaching. It adds more credibility to when I'm teaching them, and it, and it gives them more inspiration to to attack their homework assignments because they're like, well, I have to play this because if if Derek did this and he he's overseas opening for Keith Urban, then surely it's, surely this can't be a bad thing. So, <laughs> right. So, right. Yeah. And again, the school the schools are totally fine with it. So thankfully, that's I have the freedom and that luxury to do that. And I'm thinking, kind of, yeah. Go ahead. Nope. Go ahead. Keep talking. Okay. Well, I was, I was gonna say you brought up something. You talking about how people you get hit with the negative, like I can't do that, and it's like, and that's what I tell a lot of people who move to Nashville is like, you have to be willing to do anything, and if there's anything you don't want to do, I mean that's that's your choice. But like a lot of people don't want to play on Broadway. They don't want to do the Broadway strip mm-hmm. gigs um, on Nashville where you're playing honky tonk. Places to generally drunk people and uh, and you know for a long hours with not great pay, but I mean, but today thankfully because Nashville is growing at such an exorbitant rate that a lot of people can make a living just playing on Broadway. You play four or five nights a week, and you can pay your mortgage and you sleep in your bed every night. To me, that that's a great thing. I know a lot of musicians are like, oh man, I want to do what you're doing, or I want to play on this record, or I love the tour with so and so, but. I just tell people success is if you can make a living, that's success because what, you know, you know, there are plumbers out there that are making a living, taking care of their families. They can go on vacation. Maybe they own a boat and or whatnot, or they're out of debt. So those that's success to me. Like, yes, I want a Grammy, but I don't have to have a Grammy to 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 validate my success or my contentment with my career. You know, I'm happy that I can help my daughter with her college tuition every now and then. And then I can, you know, all my bills are paid and, and that that's that's what makes me happy. And I feel like that's that's success. And so whether I'm playing in a bar to drunk folks at 2 a.m. or to playing to 20,000 people in O2 Arena or playing on the Grammy winning record, like that's all great to me. Because because one, because it all goes back to I'm doing what I love. And if and if if people are if there's if they're allowed to have ba- uh, barriers to keep them from doing what they love. Like having a day gig, being a waiter, which I did, working, driving a forklift in a warehouse, which I did, and then did gigs at night. If those are bears that they're creating for themselves to keep them from doing what they love, then well, that then that's on them. I guess I'll say it like that. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't yeah. see that as a negative if you're working to a common goal. So I mean, look at I, I, I reference sports a lot. So like Kurt Warner, mm-hmm. Hall of Fame quarterback, dude was back in groceries, uh, 
like months before he, he was on the NFL, NFL yep. team. Yep. So Dude, I mean, Nick Foles was <laughs> Nick Foles was like, I'm done. I'm going to retire. And, right. And retire. they were like, you shouldn't retire. And then he won a Super Bowl. Exactly. So I'm like, come on, man. There's, there's no. Dude, Pat Martino got an accident and had to teach himself how to play guitar all over again. Yeah. Like, come on. Like, so that's nuts. That, exactly. And me being an African-American man in America, like just the fact that my parents grew up through the civil rights movement, like there's nothing that I shouldn't be able to do. Like there's a, there's enough history in humanity of doing, of overcoming adversity that I can't complain that I have to work at Olive Garden in a day to, to feed my family so I can play right. gigs at night. Like yep. that, I, that doesn't sound like, that doesn't sound like a, an obstacle to me. It's just right. a means right. to an end. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I say this all the time, man. I just, I, people don't want to work. Like yeah, people don't, don't want to work. People don't want to work hard for for the things that they want. And exactly, I say this on the podcast a lot, and I'm sure that people are like, oh, here we go. But uh, <laughs> I like people want to be the noun and not the verb. Like they want to be Preach. the touring musician. They want to be, you know, they want to be the. They want to win. They want to be the Grammy Award winner. They want to be the the per, the professional drummer. But then it's like, oh well, here's all the things that Grammy winners do, and here's all the things that professional drummers do, and here's all the things that touring drummers do, and this and that. It's like, well, I don't want to do all that. It's like, <laughs> right. well, then that you can't be the you can't you don't get to be the noun if you don't if you if you're not the verb too. Preach, preach. So that's funny. I was having this conversation with my son, my 12 year old. He's going to be mad because I messed him on this podcast. But hey, this will be, this will be some more motivation. But he's a brilliant kid. He's, he's I'm smarter than me. Email this directly to him as soon as we're <laughs> exactly. done. Exactly. He, I mean, he's brilliant already. He's smarter than me. He's going to be an engineer. He's going to do something. He's going to create something. Cure nice. for cancer. I don't know. He's brilliant. But he loves playing soccer. <laughs> but <laughs> he loves playing soccer. <laughs> he loves playing soccer. And. I remember taking him out a few months ago, and I told him, you need to juggle. Juggle the soccer ball. Get your touches up. That The more you juggle, the more touches you get on the ball, and the more the better your touches on the soccer field. Mm-hmm. And so I got a, he, he went in the backyard. He probably got to like eight or nine. And he got frustrated and came to the house mad and just angry. And I went back out there, and I worked with him. He's still getting angry. He got like – he juggled. I did. I got to like 15 or something stupid. And I'm, I have no skills. But, <laughs> but I used to play when I was a kid. <laughs> And and then he'd do it and get to four, and then he kicked the soccer ball and be on that. And he's like, I just want to get to fifteen. I was like, You can't get to fifteen until you get to five. So keep yeah. working on that. And so but but that's the thing. I think it's and not to throw him completely under the bus, but I think it translates to our our society and a lot you see where even people our age they want to be insta famous, literally, but they don't want to put the work in. So it's like they'll do you'll do the selfies, you'll do the stuff that's easy to try and get famous, but to put the real work in, and no discredit to a lot of people who have put work in doing the actual stuff, who happen to use social media as a tool. I'm not yeah, trying of to course. besmirch any of those people. But yeah, people want that instant famous. They're like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to do that. We'll say, well, yeah, I do this to do that. And they're like, well, I don't want to do that. Well, then you don't really want that. So it's like, yeah, my son wants to be a good soccer player, but if he doesn't want to juggle the ball more than five times, how is he going to be a great soccer player? So, right. And it, so, and that's, that's just the nature of the beast. And like, I, for me, I love practice and I love work. That's just how I was built. And that's thankfully I have the right DNA makeup and the right influence in my house. And that's just who I am. I love, man, when, when I used, I would just practice rudiments all day. I would shed on my drum pad for fun. And I wasn't, and you know, I wasn't necessarily always thinking about, granted I did 
prepare a Grammy accepting speech, even though I didn't get to use it when I got one, I did when <laughs> I was like seven years old. So at least I had it in my mind to achieve that goal. But right. But at the same time, I, when I was practicing, I wasn't always thinking about being on stage. Like I always wanted to play with Prince, but I wasn't always thinking about being on stage with Prince when I was practicing because I just enjoyed listening to the sound of my sticks hitting the drum pad like that. Right. That was so much fun. And yeah, I just love the process. Yes, exactly. Loving the journey. That's loving the process. That it's there's so much beauty in it. I think I try to teach my kids and remind myself that just putting your head down and enjoying the process and the journey and seeing the beauty in the in the present is this is beautiful because if you if you take ownership of the present you don't have to when you're in the future you don't have to complain about your past mm-hmm. so i love yeah that. so yeah thank you man so I, yeah so i was working on flam jams when i was 14 i was loving him i was trying to get my left hand better i loved it you know even now when i'm tr- still struggling over <laughs> garibaldi grooves out of the future sounds but <laughs> yeah. i still love it. I still love it, you know. So, yeah, I think I think people have to fall in love with the process. I think that I think that's the key. And mm-hmm. even if the process is waiting tables at Olive Garden, if yeah. that's still part of the process. It's still part of the process. It's still taking you to where you want to go. So, what's something that you that you uh, that you realized once you got in it was harder than you expected, and once something that went like once you got in it was easier than you expected? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, it's funny. I could almost say this: the session work, playing in the studio. I could almost use those for both examples. Like, really? Yeah. When I first like, because I remember I used to dread it, man. Like, when I like, because a lot of early records I played on were all jazz, and I remember the first time I played on Vijay Iyer's record. And Vijay is a brilliant musician. And a lot of that stuff is like mixed time signatures and a lot of polyphonic stuff. And like, we would do some songs where. Yeah, one song that's a 36-beat pulse, 36-beat phrase. And between the piano player, bass player, and myself, um, we were all marking that 36-group phrase. We had different groupings. So, like, mm-hmm. my drum, like, the bass line was a 12-beat phrase. So he played that three times through the cycle. And then my groove was a 9-beat phrase. So I played that four times through the cycle. And then the melody was a 6-beat phrase. So it went through six times. And on every every 6-beat, I had to mark the entrance of the melody even within my nine beat phrase and so like that's <laughs> that <laughs> that was really hard that was, yeah that was really i guess that can put that in the hard category but yeah really hearing not only just hearing hearing being able to play my part while hearing because you know you know growing up a lot of the time even almost all the music you listen to the bass player and the drum player drummer have to stay connected so playing music where the bass line didn't really have much reference to what I was playing, except occasional times through a whole 36 beat cycle, or even just to the end of the 36 beat cycle. That that really messed with my mind. So that so I guess I could put that in a hard category too. But so to go to the other side with studio work, where really because I had the capacity and ability to play that kind of complex music, going to the studio and playing a four chord pop country song. It, I really had to do a lot of editing and a lot of a lot of processing and think of okay, I need to play this as a song and think and, and it used to freak me out. So I even remember even when I recorded that stuff with Vijay, I was I was just fearful. I was just so the anxiety was so high because I thought, man, it's gonna be dec- documented for the rest of my life. What if what if people don't like my playing? And you know, I wanna I wanna sound like 
this guy now. I want to, you know, and I don't. And so, like, all of that, just all of these stupid fears and insecurities were just brought to the forefront because I knew it was going to be recorded forever. Like, live studio, you can throw a lot, a live, a live show, you can throw a lot of stuff away. Yeah. With this eat, whereas, at least back then when I was playing jazz predominantly, whereas, like, having to be in record, it's like, man, people are going to forever know what I sounded like at this particular moment on this particular record. Mm-hmm. So that was a big obstacle to overcome. So so fast forward when I'm doing pop country stuff, it's the similar influence similar insecurities crept in like, man, I gotta make sure I'm playing like every every kick pattern has to be the right velocity, the same amount, everything consistent as possible. I can't put any doubles here, okay. My drum fills have to be simple, okay. I can't play too hard on the high hats. So it's a different different very different approach but same anxieties you know I me mean? right oh man yeah okay do i do acrostic on this verse or do i go snare drum okay do i use my black beauty or do i use my acrylite like so it's, so like all that stuff you know do i put a crash here or do i do i wait until the second chorus? Like, all that stuff You're sort of like drowning so, in choices exactly exactly so i think that's what makes studio work so hard because you have a lot of options but but you still want to Obviously, you want to play the song right, but you also want to give it something that's unique but still nostalgic. Like mm-hmm. I think that's probably the biggest balance of playing great songs, having that balance of something that reminds you of something else, but also it's different where it sticks out and actually people can grab onto something where it's just not white noise and just you know vanilla that they can easily pass by. Yeah. So that's yeah. that. So I think even to this day, that's still kind of a. Um, a struggle I have is trying to bring that into it, and then, but at the same time, it can be really easy because because I I run myself I I can let myself off the hook because I don't have to play I don't have to use a bunch of chops I don't have to do a drum solo I just have to play this pattern that makes sense with the song that can locks with the bass player that uh, that feels right has the right feel and so in a sense that's easy to me now because like oh I just play what's what what's what I know is right. Right. Instead of, instead of just being concerned with expectations, I can just be in the moment in the song, try to create a great song. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I'm trying to think of other easier things. I don't know. I don't know. Um, well, I just, and the reason why I asked that is because I, I think a lot of times we look at where we are and sort of where we're trying to get to. And we say, oh, yeah. man, it may seem so far away or so hard. It's like, oh, my God, I'm not going to be able to figure this out. But then there's other things that, you know, and, and it turns out it's like, oh, it actually wasn't that hard. And then there's other things where we're like, oh, this will be easy. I'll just do this thing. And you get into it and you're like, oh, my God, this is way harder to yeah. try to figure this out or to, to make this happen or to make these connections or to get these gigs than, than I really thought. So it's always interesting to hear oh, yeah. different people's stories because some, you know, fall into place some some are extremely you know hard and they they've been sort of battled and bruised and then some are in the middle so it's always it's always interesting to me to hear this yeah and it's always the occasion where i run into an artist or a producer that's very demanding Mm -hmm. and uh and i've had some situations in the studio where it's like it's got to the point where i'm almost thinking to myself like you probably should have called someone else And it wasn't like I wasn't capable of giving them what they wanted. It's just they were so anal about stuff and so demanding that one, I was thinking, is it? It almost made me question not their not their talent or ability, but just their motivation. 
Right. Like, are they telling me this stuff because they learned that this is the right way to go or do that? Or maybe they don't know their direction, so they're constantly making me try stuff. Or are they just trying to put me in my place and make me feel – are they trying to humble me? Like, right. I, I think like, I'm okay. I, I get humbled every time I go home. I think I'm okay. Yeah. And, I, and I'm and i my own worst cri- – and we're all our worst critic anyway, so it's not hard yeah. being humbled. But I was like, man, this is – it was hard to make music. It got to the point where it was hard to make music mm-hmm. where it wasn't – it didn't even feel like it was about making music. It was, it was almost about like this complex math equation that didn't need to be that hard. Mm-hmm. So that I think those 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 can be very challenging words, and I and I'm man, I'll give you what you want. I'm I I'm Mister Accommodating. Like if if you don't want me to play snare the whole t- hey, I'll I got you. I'll get you everything you need. But when right, I don't know, it's just a nitpicking. It's just when you cross that line from from um, being knowing what you hear and trying to get it out of your head right. into what's coming out to just being annoying <laughs> for lack of a better yeah and it's always weird when you don't know if it's you're like is it is is it ego or are they just trying to yeah. get me to do these things because they want to be they want to be right they don't want to do what's right, right for the music and i think there's i mean there's a lot of that in sort of any any situation business and oh, no music doubt. No and, doubt. and everything where it's like this is my idea and i want it to be right and it's like well it might not be the right idea yeah for the, for and the situation yeah and it's okay if it's not the right idea. You're not right. any less. It doesn't. It's not. You know. It's not a. You no. Know, an edict on your intellect. It's, but but you could be wrong. It's okay. Yeah. Every <laughs> everyone's wrong from time to time. Exactly. Exactly. So if people are uh, interested in in keeping up with you and following along with what you got going on, where's the best way to do that? Um, I probably spend most of my time on Instagram. I do have a website. It's a uh, Derek C Phillips That's D E R R E K. And then middle initial C, phillips.com. Or they can I, they can go to my Instagram, which is also the same um, same uh, place, D-E-R-R-E-K-C, Phillips, on Instagram. And, yeah, I, have, I tend to put a lot of videos up of me in the studio or playing with other artists around town and whatnot. And, yeah, I think those are the, probably the two best ways to keep up with me. And, and yeah, I'm just... Yeah, I'm happy. I love I love connecting with people, and you know, new drummers move to Nashville all the time and call me and have coffee and whatnot. So I'm always down. Yeah, if you're in Nashville, Nick, I'd love to have coffee with you. For hey. sure, I have to get yeah. to I have to get to Nashville. I haven't been there in a while, so yeah, come on, man, come on. I will, <laughs> I will for yeah. sure. Um, but Derek, I want to thank you. I know you know we were saying earlier you're on the road, so I know that you're busy. I appreciate you taking the time to chat, man. And again. I mean, I've checked out a bunch of your other work, but like that Robin Ford record, really that that was that that was the first one, man. And I still listen yeah. to that. I'm still listening to it. I got it on heavy rotation, man. It's a great Dude, record. That you was played your that tail was so much fun. Thank you, man. That was so much fun. Robin is Robin is as a freak, man. He's he's obviously he's a master, but he's mm-hmm. he's almost seven years old, and he's getting better with age. And but he has this he has this great quality. He has this great um, dichotomy of being kind of a master the Zen master of what he does, but also kind of youthful, inquisitive, seeking more. He was constantly like, when we're in a session, like working on stuff, he'd come up with these great ideas, but he's constantly asking, what do you guys think? Or should we make the bridge four bars instead of eight bars? What should we do here? Or, do you guys like this chord progression? He was constantly involving us in the process, which I thought he's, he's great, allowing us to be a part of it instead of just telling us what to do. He wanted us to help create 
the music with them. And so nice. I, th- I think that's why the record sounds the way it does. And it's, yeah, it's, it's great. And I love where he is in his, in his journey as a musician, where he's really into songwriting. And I just love the record because it's very textural. Like he, we go a lot of different places and, mm-hmm. and I feel like I get to utilize so many of my tools and my assets. Like obviously my jazz background mixed with hip hop and rock, like everything I grew up listening to, I felt like I got to bring a piece of that into that project. Mm-hmm. And um, even when we play live too, so yeah, thanks. So I think I appreciate that, man. That was a fun of course, project man. to be a part of, and yeah, we had a great time. Good, good deal. So everyone should check that record out and just just keep yep. keep an eye on the stuff that that Derek's doing. He's always he's always working on something cool. So, uh, well, yeah. Again, I appreciate you taking the time to chat, man. It was really great to get to know you better. And hopefully, if I'm in Nashville soon, we can get together. If you're in LA, uh, we can we can meet up. Absolutely, man. Oh yeah, and then my Charlie Hunter. Charlie Hunter, Lucy Woodward record is coming out soon. We just recorded that last November. That's a fun one too. So go check that one out, everybody. <laughs> Man, <laughs> yeah, I think please. just uh, not to like, we don't have to, you know, go off on a tangent about it because <laughs> I think that I can too. But like, that's another guy, Charlie Hunter, who is like, I think he's Ooh. one of the most underrated cats out there. Oh my gosh. He's brilliant. I saw him years ago with, uh, with, oh, who was playing drum? G. Calvin Weston. Oh, wow. You familiar wow. with him? The, the yes, drummer? I know Kevin yeah. Weston. Wow, that's way back. Yeah, because I knew him from the Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was like 04? Wow, I've heard this name. Uh, yeah. maybe, maybe not that long. Maybe like 06 or 07, something like that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Just like, but him and Charlie, um, I mean, so anybody who doesn't know who Charlie Hunter is, one, shame on you, but two, go check him out and, and yes. check out the new record that, that Derek has with him. It's, you know, Charlie's the man for sure. He really is the man. Yes. Yeah. Well, good deal, man. Well, safe travels out there on the road. And uh, again, thanks so much for for taking the time to chat. I do appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Nick. Thanks again for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. My pleasure. Seeking me out. And yeah, to be continued. Let's talk some more, man. Let's do it. (laughs) Thanks, man. Thank you. Take care, man. There you have it. That was the one and only Derek Phillips. And if you want to check out the show notes, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 482. And that's all I got for you. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I will be talking to you soon. Peace.